Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Welcome out here to the Medina East Campus on this, uh, this Mother's Day Sunday. And of course, before we jump into the message today, kind of like Clark uh, mentioned earlier, I just, of course, want to pause and just recognize for a moment those of you who wear the badge of mother. And so I know that that badge comes in a lot of different stages and a lot of different circumstances. Uh, the, the, the title mom comes in a bunch of different places. But if you're a person uh, who wears that badge or has that title in life of mother, uh, we just, of course, want to pause. We want to recognize, celebrate, and, and say thank you. Uh, we, we view mothers as a gift, a very specific and a very, uh, a, a very um, nurturing and loving gift that God has given to the church, that he has given to the family, and that ultimately he has given to the world. And so thank you for what you do, because it, it is an amazing part of the family. Uh, none of us would be here if we didn't have moms. And so thank you for giving us life. That's a big thing. And so hopefully this, this uh, week, if, as you get a chance to today, hopefully go and spend some time with your family, uh, you get a chance to get appreciated. Hopefully you get spoiled a little bit uh, because you deserve it. So we, we love you, moms. We appreciate you. We recognize the, the incredible, unique gift that you are uh, to the family and to the church and to really the world. So thanks for that. Uh, today, what we're doing uh, on this Mother's Day Sunday is we're actually continuing in a series that we've been in for the past several weeks, if you've been here, uh, that we've been calling the Everyday Revolution. And in this series, if you're just kind of tuning in with us, if, if maybe you're a guest or you haven't been here over the past few weeks, is we're talking together uh, about something in, that is sometimes referred to in the Bible as the household codes. So this is kind of what we're looking at, we're sort of studying together, is the household codes. And the household codes, like we mentioned, are basically a grouping of passages that you find in the New Testament that speak span over a variety of everyday relationships. And so, in fact, if you go to the New Testament, you will find, here's just a quick picture of the different places that you can locate the household codes. And, and so, like I said, these are kind of the, the, the different passages that we're studying through this series as we kind of go through this together. But what all of these have in common when you look into these passages is that they all span everyday relationships. And so, for example, in the household codes, you will see uh, that there is some directives, there are some instructions that are given to the marriage relationship. It speaks to husbands and wives and how husbands and wives should interact with each other. It talks about the marriage relationship. It talks about parenting. So it talks about how parents should interact and approach parenting. It talks about uh, generational considerations, so how un, uh, younger and older generations interact with and invest in each other. Uh, it speaks to gender issues, uh, gender roles, which, of course, I know is kind of a hot topic in our society today, but, but the household codes actually speak to that. And so the reason that we're looking at the household codes together really is because we're, we're investigating one very specific question through this series. So quite simply, here's the question that we're looking at as we journey through the household codes. That's this. Does God, does God have an ideal for the way that we interact in our everyday relationships, right? Does God have an ideal for our everyday relationships? So, in other words, does God have an ideal for the way that we approach marriage, right? Does God have an idea in mind of how marriage should work and how husbands and wives should interact with each other? Does God have an ideal for parenting, right? Does God have a way that he, 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 he intends for us to approach parenting and for children to approach parents? Does God have an ideal for the way that generations interact with each other? Does God have an ideal for gender and the way that gender role plays out? Or does every culture just define those things in their own terms, right? So does every culture just kind of define marriage however they want to and define gender however they want to and define generational, you know, uh, relationships however they want to? Or is there a transcendent way to view these things, right? It, does, has God given a, an ideal that transcends culture and that transcends history as it relates to these very, very practical everyday 
relationships. And so that's what we're sort of navigating through together as we jump into the series. And so we've been looking at these different relationships. And so a few weeks ago, uh, you might remember if you were here, we actually started the conversation on the first relationship that's oftentimes found in the household codes, and that is marriage. And so we have been talking about the relationship of marriage for the past couple of weeks here. And we started that conversation a couple weeks ago. Last week, if you were here, uh, you might remember we spent the whole week really talking to wives. And we said, what does, the, what does the Bible say? What do the household codes say towards wives? What are kind of the instructions and the directives? And how is a wife to interact with her husband? How is a wife to interact in her marriage and to view that? And so we kind of unpacked that all last week. So this week, like I promised you, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to spend the whole week and we are going to address specifically husbands. And so today, we're going to spend some time, we're going to talk to husbands. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute now, isn't it Mother's Day? Right? Doesn't it make sense that we'd be talking to, you know, moms or to wives today, but not to like husbands? And, and, and that makes sense, but let me give you the logic behind this, because this was actually pretty well thought through. So a couple of months ago, we knew that we were going to be talking about marriage uh, around Mother's Day, and originally, we were slated to talk to wives today. That's what we were going to spend the time doing today. But if you were here last week, uh, you might remember that the conversation that we had towards wives was a very important one. I believe it's very important, but it's also extremely challenging and extremely stretching, for many wives. And so we said, you know what, let's, uh, let's not have that one on Mother's Day. And we said, instead, why don't we have a challenging and stressing, a stretching message for the husbands, and that will be our gift to the wives on Mother's Day, okay? So that's our gift to you. Happy Mother's Day, and you're welcome, all right? So, and as for you husbands, buckle up, because it's going to get fun, right? So if you got your Bibles, why don't you, why don't you grab them with me, and we're going to return uh, once again to Ephesians chapter 5. So we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. This is by far the lengthiest and the most comprehensive household code of all of them as it relates to marriage. And so if you got your Bibles, go ahead and flip there with me. Uh, if you did not bring a Bible with you here today, that's not a problem at all. We have some Bibles available for you um, in the chairs in front of you or underneath you. And in those black Bibles, if you turn to page 816, that's where you'll find Ephesians 5. Okay, so go ahead and get there. And then let me also just say this, that if you're a person that doesn't own a Bible, like if you're a guest with us and you don't own a copy of the Scripture, we think it'd be so important that you have one that we want you to take one. You could just go ahead and take that, uh, make that a gift from us to you. Happy Mother's Day. Even if you're not a mom, you can take one, and that's, that's a good thing. So Ephesians chapter 5, go ahead and get there. As you're finding Ephesians 5, let me kind of tell you the game plan. So what I want to do is I actually want to look at all of the household codes that speak to husbands. I want to look at all of them. And then I want to come back around and sort of discuss kind of, kind of you know, uh, what, what, what those different passages are saying, okay? So there are three household codes of the household codes that I mentioned that give specific directives and instructions to husbands. So I'm going to read all three of them, and then we'll cycle back around and we'll have a discussion. So we'll start with Ephesians 5. That's the passage you have in front of you. We'll start off in verse 25. So this is the Apostle Paul, okay? Paul was a, was a, was a, a leader in the church. He is writing to the Ephesians. Here's what he says in his household code. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one's ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Okay, so that's the first household code that's given to husbands. 
Let me give you a second one. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. You don't need to flip there in your Bible. I'll put it on the screen for you. 1 Peter 3 says this, in the same way, you husbands give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. So it's 1 Peter 3, and then I'll give you one more. This is the briefest of them all. It's just one sentence. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right, so those are our three household codes that are given as it relates to husbands. Now, you'll probably notice when you read through these different household codes that there are some differences, right? So some of them are longer than other ones. There's a few variances between them. But the one thing that all three of them have in common, you probably noticed, is that the role of a husband, according to the household codes, is to love and is to lead his wife. Okay, so all three of them have this in common. That the husband's role in the marriage is to love and to lead his wife. Now, there's actually a biblical word that's used to describe this position that husbands are given. And it is a word that unfortunately has a whole bunch of misconceptions that come along with it, but it's this word headship. What the Bible tells us is that husbands are to be the head of their marriage and they are to be the head of their family. This is a biblical term. Let me just show it to you real quick. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, just go back a couple verses to verse 23. And notice what it says. It says, the husband is the head, that's the word headship, right? He is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So let me just reverse a little bit. If you were here a couple weeks ago when we first started talking about marriage, we said that marriage, as we sort of investigated together, we said that marriage is actually something that is created by God. Uh, that it is not anthropological, it's not a man-made invention, it's actually a God-ordained institution all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, we see the very first marriage. And so because of that, we said that marriage is actually created by God with a created intent, that God made marriage to, to function in a, in a very specific way. And, and we said the function of marriage, according to the Bible, is that God intended marriage to paint a picture. And the picture that marriage is to emulate or is to paint or to portray is that of Christ and the church. And so we said, man, that's God's blueprint for marriage. That's God's blueprint for marriage, is that a marriage is to be modeled after Christ and the church. And so we said what that means is, is that husbands and wives have very specific roles according to the Bible. And so husbands, the role that they're to play is they're to be the head of the relationship the same way that Christ is the head of the church. That they are to lovingly, sacrificially lead their wives like Christ lovingly and sacrificially led the church. And then the Bible says that wives are to play the role of the church, that they're to portray the church who reciprocates that love and in submission uh, submits to the headship of her husband. That's what the church does, right? Now, so, so the Bible really says this. It says, if you want to understand marriage, here's the roles of husbands and wives. Husband's role is headship and wives' role is submission according to what scripture says. Now, here's the problem with that. Right, the problem is that in 21st century America, in our cultural context, in our cultural setting, these two words have a whole lot of baggage that go with them. I and mean, we started talking about this a little bit last week, but these two words, we have so many preconceived notions and so many presuppositions that we bring into this that oftentimes our understanding of these terms is warped and we misunderstand what they mean. So, for example... In 21st century America, when we read headship and submission, when we say, man, this is what marriage looks like, for many of us, when we read headship, we read dictatorship. 
right? And when we read submission, we read subjugation. So, so for a lot of us, this doesn't sound like a marriage relationship. This sounds like a master and a slave relationship. And so a lot of us have a hard time with that, especially, like I said, in a cultural setting like ours. But I believe that understanding the biblical picture of marriage that way is a gross distortion and a gross misunderstanding of what the Bible actually means when it talks about headship and submission. And so last week, we actually spent the whole time trying to define what submission is. And so we kind of came up with this definition. This is just a review from last week. We said that submission, according to the Bible, is a wife's willingness to recognize and respond to her husband's leadership. And so we actually spent the whole week last week unpacking this. We talked about what submission is not. We talked about what submission is. I actually had my wife get up here, and we talked a little bit about practically speaking, what does this actually look like in real time? And some of you might remember that. And by the way, if you missed last week's conversation, I would highly encourage you to go back. You can go to our website. You can listen to, you can watch that online. All of that is for free. And I would actually say this. I would say that today's conversation is really incomplete without last week's conversation. Okay, so it might be important to catch up on that. But today, like I said, we're talking to the husband. So, so I want to give you a definition of what I believe biblical headship is according to the household codes. And then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking this definition. All right, so, he, so here it is. Here's, here's a definition I believe the household codes is teaching us that headship is a husband's portrayal of Christ-like leadership through sacrificing, initiating, protecting, and providing for his wife and his family. Okay, so what is biblical headship? If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. We're going to talk about this whole time. Husbands, you're taking notes, right? Get a pen. Here it is. Headship is a husband's portrayal of Christ-like leadership through sacrificing, initiating, protecting, and providing for his wife and his family. Now, this, this definition is loaded. So I'm going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it. All right, so I want you to notice first and foremost, notice the word that's used here. It said headship is a husband's portrayal. Okay, it's his husband portrayal, his portrayal of Christ-like leadership. Now, that's an important word. Here's why it's important. Because like I mentioned, marriage is intended to paint a picture. And the role of the husband, according to the way that God created marriage, is that he is to portray the role of Christ, Christ-like leadership. Now, the word portrayal is really important because what this means is, husbands, this does not mean that we are necessarily more qualified to lead than our wives are. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we necessarily are more competent to lead than our wives are. That's not what that means either, right? All it means is that God has given us the responsibility to play this part. We are to portray this. This is a role that God has given us. And so what is it that we're portraying? Well, notice, it's the portrayal of Christ-like leadership. All right, now this is really important, and here's why. Where does a husband get his cues in how to lead in his relationship and in his family and in his marriage? Where is he to get his cues? Is a husband to take his cues from the leadership examples of business leaders and CEOs that we see in major businesses across our country today? Is that where he's to take his cues? Is the husband to take his cues, his leadership cues, from the way that politicians tend to exercise leadership and exercise authority? Is that where he's to take his cues? Is a husband simply to define what he believes leadership is based on his own understanding of what he thinks it ought to be? And the answer to all of that is no. A husband is called to a very specific type of leadership, a very specific type of headship. And what is that? It is Christ-like leadership. That is, a husband is to take his cues from the leadership and from the headship of Jesus Christ, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. In Ephesians, it says that the reason a husband does this is out of reverence for Christ. 
It's out of submission to Jesus. It's out of a recognition and a response to who Christ is and what his leadership is like. So that begs a real good question, right? And the question is this. Well, how does Jesus lead? If a husband is to take his cues from Christ-like leadership, then how does Jesus lead? Which, by the way, husbands, I think that's a question we ought to be preoccupied with. How does Jesus lead? Well, I'll give you a few. How about this one? Christ-like leadership through, first and foremost, Christ-like leadership is a sacrificing leadership. It is a leadership that is characterized by a willingness and um, a desire to lovingly sacrifice oneself for the sake of others. It's Christ-like leadership. If you notice, Christ-like leadership is one that always leverages the position and, and the, the, the strength of the one in leadership for the sake of those that he is leading. I'll just show you back in Ephesians chapter 5. Glance at your Bibles again. It says, husbands, you're to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now look, it says he gave himself up for her. That's the example the Bible uses of what Christ-like leadership looks like. He gave himself up for her. Now, I think it's worth noting, by the way, I want to mention to you, you notice in this passage how it says that husbands are to love their wives just like Christ loved the church. I think it's worth noting that the word love here that's used in the original Greek language is actually a very specific type of love. It's the word agapeo or agape love. It's the same word that is reserved for God's like type of love. And that's important because unfortunately we live in a society today uh, where we have one word for love that we apply to a whole bunch of different scenarios, right? So for example, I could say, I love soft pretzels, which is a fact, that's true, I do love soft pretzels. But in the very same sentence, I could also say, and I love my wife. But I mean two very different things, right? If I loved my wife the same way I loved soft pretzels, like we'd be in a bad spot and our marriage would be in trouble, right? And I'd be a pretty messed up person, honestly, right? If that was the case. But we just have one word. Well, in, the, in, in Bible times, in, in the Greek language in particular, they had different words for love. And so, for example, uh, one of the big words that's used for love in the Bible is the word, is the word phileo, uh, which is brotherly love or friendship love. So you think of Philadelphia, uh, the, the city of brotherly love, it's the same root word. It's phileo. That's, that's family love. That's, that's like brotherly love. That's like friendship. But I want you to notice that the Bible doesn't say, husbands, befriend your wives. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, husbands, phileo your wives. It doesn't say, husbands, like your wives. Now, let me be clear. Husbands, I think we ought to shoot, that, we ought to shoot for the, the goal that our wives are our best friends. I think that's an important thing. I think that's a great thing. However, I think it's important to note that that is not the, the primary love that a husband is called to in a relationship, all right? The, notice also the passage doesn't say, husbands, eros your wives. Uh, eros, some of you might know, is the Greek uh, word for love that is also translated, uh, it's where we get our word erotic from. And so what kind of love is that? Well, that's the passionate, romantic, sexual love. Right? That's what that's talking about. But that's not what this says. It doesn't say husbands make love to your wives. That's not what it says, right? Lest any of you husbands go home and say to your wife, honey, we need to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. And so let's do that, right? And don't get me wrong. That's a big, it's an important part of marriage, right? Important part of marriage. But that's not what it says. It says husbands agape your wives, agapeo your wives. So what is that type of love? I mean, that's God's love. That is a covenantal love. That's Christ-like. That is a love that says it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how much relational harmony we're experiencing or not experiencing. I'm not going anywhere. Okay, this is a staying love. This is God's love that he's talking about. And listen, I think this is so important because unfortunately I have seen so many marriages on the brink of disaster simply because they have a bad definition of what love is. 
I've talked to couples that have been on the edge of divorce and I've asked them, why is it that you guys are thinking about separating? And they'll say, well, the problem is we just fell out of love. We've just fallen out of love. By definition, you cannot fall out of agape. You can't. You can, listen, you can fall out of feelings. You can fall out of romance. You can fall out of eros. You can fall out of friendship. Okay? You can fall out of liking each other. You can fall out of phileo. You cannot fall out of agape. It's not possible. It is a committed, I am staying until death does us part. That's what it is. And so the Bible says, man, what is a husband called love? He is called to agape his wife. And then he's to look to Christ to be the one to emulate that. Now notice, he specifies what Christ-like love looks like. He says, what does Christ's love do? He says, well, it gives itself up. Christ gave himself up for her. Listen, one of the staple characteristics of Christ-like leadership is a willingness to lovingly sacrifice oneself for the sake of the other. See, unfortunately, uh, when you look, and this is just a generalization, I don't think this is always true, but unfortunately, when you look at our society, what you see is that most of the models of leadership that we have in politics and in business and in society are, are models where a person leverages their position and they leverage the benefits of their leadership position really for the advancement of self, right? I'm in charge, that means I get to do what I want. That tends to be the mentality of many people in leadership. Not everyone, but many people. But you will see that Christ-like leadership is characterized extremely differently than that, very, very differently than that. In fact, I think that one of the greatest pictures of Christ-like leadership that we have in all of Scripture is actually found in John chapter 13. I love John 13. I just want to show it to you real quick. I think, like I said, I think this is a beautiful picture of what Christ-like leadership looks like. And let me kind of set it up. So in John 13... Uh, this is actually the Last Supper. You guys remember the Last Supper, right? So this is the final uh, meal that Jesus had, the Passover feast with his disciples before he went to the cross. So the, he was 24 hours away from going to the cross. And the Bible says that he was with his disciples. And notice what it says. It says the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Okay, so let me just pause here for a minute. The Bible says that Jesus had some disciples. Some of you guys remember this. One of them was Judas, Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus was the one who sold Jesus out and betrayed him with a kiss. And the Bible says, by the way, that Jesus knew that Judas was going to do this. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus also knew that Peter was going to deny him. One of his other disciples was going to de deny him three times. Jesus also knew that all of his disciples, who he had spent three years investing in, were going to abandon him when he went to the cross. He knew that. Now watch this. The Bible says that he knew all of that, but he also knew something else. Jesus knew, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. All right, this is important. Translation, Jesus knew that he was the most powerful person in the universe. He had the highest position imaginable. God had put all things under his power. Bible says that he had come from God and he was returning to God. Now watch this. This is incredible. The Bible says, so. What do you mean so? In light of the fact that Jesus knew he was the most powerful person in the universe and in light of the fact that Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed and he was going to be denied and he was going to be abandoned, so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel on his waist and he washed the disciples' feet. Some of you guys know this. Washing feet back in this time was the lowest position a servant could have. It was, it, was, it was by far the lowliest place of servanthood imaginable. And do you notice, do you notice the distance 
between the position, the high-ranking position of Jesus and the depths of which he bows the knee to serve those that he loves and he leads. See, this is Christ-like leadership. Christ-like leadership is not leveraging my position, leveraging my power for the benefit of myself. No, no, no. It's an upside-down type of leadership. It's a leadership that says, I'm going to leverage all of my strength and all of my position and all of my power for the flourishing and the betterment of you, of someone else. That's the type of leadership husbands are called to. And if you notice in this passage, Ephesians 5, he says this. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, now notice, to make her holy, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. Do you notice the reason that Jesus sacrifices for the church is entirely for the benefit of the church? He says, I'm doing it all for you. It's all for you. I'm leveraging all of my resources that you might flourish. And so husbands, the Bible says this is the type of leadership that we are called to. Why is that important? Well, here's why it's important because you guys know this, right? Unfortunately, this idea of headship has been abused by husbands throughout many years and even today in the church as an excuse, as a tactic for husbands to subjugate their families and to subjugate their wives to do what they want, right? And so there's husbands that say, hey, hey, listen, I'm the head of this house, right? I'm the head of this household. I don't know why I always revert back to that voice. It just seems appropriate, doesn't it? You know, I'm the head of this household, so that means we do what I want. I'm the man. So we do what I want, right? We eat, what, we eat the food I want. I'm the keeper of the remote control. We watch the shows I want to watch. I do the thinking for this family. And there's been guys that have used this as a tactic to make their wives do whatever it is and their families do whatever it is that he wants to do. And I'm just saying that if that's the perspective and the view you have of headship, you have a very warped understanding of what Christ-like leadership is. Christ-like leadership is leadership, yes, but it is leadership that, that gives of itself leverages its power and position for the benefit of another person. All right, so that's where we got to start. We got to start there. Let's go back to our definition. Headship is a husband's portrayal of Christ-like leadership through sacrificing, okay, sacrificial, willingly, lovingly. Here's the next thing, initiating. Christ-like leadership is one that is characterized by initiating, taking initiative. Let me show you what I mean. You go back to Ephesians chapter five. Notice it says, husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. Now check this out. He gave himself up for her. He gave himself willingly, lovingly. Jesus gave of himself for the sake of his church. I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you guys are, if you guys are Bible people, I don't know if you've ever noticed that God's act of salvation towards humanity is always on account of God's initiative. God is always the one that takes initiative, right? Think about uh, John 3.16. What's John 3.16 say? God so loved the world that he sent his son. Do you notice the direction of salvation, it comes from God to us. John chapter 10, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I give it willingly. Jesus is the one who initiates in his relationship with the church. It's not like the church came to Jesus and said, can you save us, please? Could you please save us? And Jesus is like, I'll get, when I get around to it, I'll get down there and save you. That's not how it worked. He took initiative to come to us and to save us. So what does that mean, practically speaking, husbands? Well, I think it means this, guys. I think it means that the mantle is on us, husbands, to take initiative in our relationships with our wives and our families. I think the mantle is on us to initiate. You're like, well, what do you mean, initiate? Like, what are you talking about? Like, in what way? Well, I mean, like, in every way. You're like, well, can you be more clear? Sure. I'll give you three examples of how I think this looks. There's more than that, but I'll give you three. How about this one? Gentlemen, husbands, I think this means that, that God has put it on us. It's our responsibility to initiate in our marriage romantically. 
okay? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for a wife to take initiative romantically. I'm just saying the responsibility, I believe, if we are, to, if we are called to be uh, the leaders, Christ-like leadership as he has defined it, I believe that the onus is on us to take responsibility to do this. And the reason this is important is because there is a trap, I think, that husbands can fall into. And, uh, and I can speak on this because I'm a husband, and I've seen this in my own life. And there's a trap we can fall into, husbands. And, and, and the way I think about it is like this. The trap that we can fall into is for us, sometimes we can view our wives like they're a trophy that you win in hunting. You know what I mean? I don't know if any of you are hunters. But if, think about it for a minute. If you're a hunter, let's just say you're hunting deer, right? What, what is it that you do in hunting? Well, here's what you do. You exercise a whole bunch of time, a whole bunch of creativity, a whole bunch of resources. You spend a whole bunch of money to try to figure out a way to capture that prize, right? That's what you do. So you will spend hours sitting in a deer stand out in a tree. You will put deer urine on yourself, which I never understood entirely, right? You'll go to great lengths. Why? Why? Because of the hunt, because of the hunt. And then when you finally win the prize, what do you do? Well, you put it on your wall, you mantle it on your wall, and then you rest. Why? Because the hunt is over. See, and the problem is, husbands, we can fall into the same mentality, you know, back when we were dating and back when we were engaged, man, we invested such creativity, such thoughtfulness, such energy into winning the affections and into winning the heart of our wives, right? And then when we get married, what can happen is we can, we can kind of fall into this mentality. The work is over. The hunt is done. And I can just tell you, like I said, I can relate to this. I remember when Jess and I were dating, and I remember laying in bed late at night trying to think and create and come up with good things to try to figure out, man, how can I win her heart? How can I win her affections? I put so much time and creativity into our dates and these type of things. Why? Because there was all these other jokers who were trying to get a date with her. And I was like, no way, man, I'm going to win, right? And then when I finally walked her down the aisle, I was like, I win, I win, you know? Win the hunt, baby. She's mine. Stay away. And, and that's kind of how I felt. But see, what can happen is then when you get into the marriage relationship, you can start to lax a little bit. And you can start falling into a place where you no longer fight for the affections of the heart of your wife. It's very easy to happen. It's only natural for that to take place, right? How easy is it for us husbands to simply fall into a routine where we come home from a hard day at work and, and how easy is it just to mindlessly pick up the remote, flip on the TV, veg out until it's time for bed and then just repeat the next day and the next day and the next day. And listen, I'm just saying this is so important that we initiate romantically and the reason it's so important is because this is at the root of so many affairs, and, and listen, please hear me. I don't think there is any justifiable reason that anyone should have an affair in their marriage. There's not any justifiable reason. However, husbands, if we don't do this, we certainly aren't helping. I think God has put this on us. We need to take initiative in our relationships romantically. We need to fight for it. So what does that mean? I think practically speaking, guys, what that means for us husbands, I think we need to work at putting in, investing creativity and time and energy and thoughtfulness and resources into romancing our wives, into winning their affections and winning their heart. Listen, man, let's just be honest. For some of you guys, if you invested half the energy into romancing your wife that you did into your golf game, half the creativity, half of the research, you would have an awesome marriage. For some of us, honestly, if we were to, take, if we were to spend half the creativity and energy that we give into our hobbies, or that we give into our work, our marriage will be in an entirely different place, man, right? And, and so I think, guys, it's on us. So, so what is this, man, just, just, just carving out time, making space. Take her on a date night. Take her on a date night. Break the monotony. Go to a restaurant where you have to sit down where there's no TV so you can listen with your face, right? It's like a good thing. 
And I think, I think that in Christ-like leadership, we initiate romantically. Okay, so that's one. How about this one, husbands? I think that if God has called us to love, love our wives like Christ loved the church, that means that we need to initiate relationally. That the mantle is on us to initiate relationally. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. I think that husbands, we are responsible to God. We are responsible for the relational uh, environment, for the relational climate of our marriage relationship, right? And so, for example, if I was to ask, if you're a husband right now, if I was to ask you, husband, how is your marriage going? And you were to say to me, uh, you know, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it, right? Or if I said, husband, how's your marriage going? And you said, uh, honestly, dude, it's, uh, it's been better. It's been better. Or if I said to you, husband, how's your marriage? And you said, it's not good, especially after this message. It's not great. You know? <laughs> and, uh, right? and if I was to follow up and I was to ask you the question, okay, I get it. Why? Why? And if you were to answer that question, you know, why is your marriage, why don't you know how your marriage is doing? Why is your marriage not as good as it used to be? Why is your marriage in a bad place? And if you were to answer that question by, by saying this, if you were to start by saying, well, she, we see she never, we see she always, we see she doesn't. If your answer begins with she and it doesn't begin with I, I think you're misunderstanding the responsibility that God has placed on us in taking relational, uh, and taking relational initiative. Okay? Now listen, I don't, I don't think that means, husbands, that we are always 100% at fault, but I do think it means that we are 100% responsible. And so if your relationship is, 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 is in, like if it's tense, if there's conflict that's not been resolved, if there's relational dissonance or distance, you guys, I think it's on us that we need to be the ones to take initiative to try to resolve that conflict. I think that means we need to be the first to say we're sorry. We need to be the first, even if she's 99.999% wrong, we need to own our point, 0001% and own it. And in humility, come and break that together. It reminds me of the story, maybe you guys have heard this before, the married couple, they got into this, this, uh, this, this just knockdown, drag out fight. You guys know those fights, just a really bad fight. And they just got in this real bad fight, heated argument, and it ended up, uh, ended up kind of resulting in them giving the silent treatment to each other. Any of you guys ever do that, give each other the silent treatment? None of you, because you're perfect, apparently, right? And so they gave each other the silent treatment, and, and this was a bad fight. So it lasted for, like, a couple days, and then it went on to, like, three days. Four days later, they're still not talking, not talking. You know, they're going to bed angry. They're sleeping with their backs to each other, just going through the house quiet. Bad news. And so finally, it kind of came to be that the husband had to go out of town on business, and he had to catch a flight real early, so he had to be up at 5 o'clock in the morning. But not wanting to break the silence and break his pride... Uh, he took a post-it note and he wrote a note to his wife and put it in a place that she was guaranteed to see it. And it just simply said, I have to get up at five in the morning tomorrow to catch my flight. Would you wake me up? Put it somewhere she could see it. So the next morning he goes to bed, you know, the whole thing. Next morning he wakes up, sun's shining, birds are chirping. It's 9 a.m. Right? <laughs> Slept through his flight. And so he's aggravated, he's mad at her, and he gets up only to find a post-it note on his nightstand written by his wife that said, it's 5 a.m., get up. <laughs> It's pretty good, right? It's pretty good. But guys, I think, I think all that this means is husbands are the ones who are in charge of, I believe, taking the first step in creating relational harmony, right? I, I have a counselor buddy of mine. He said something to me I thought was interesting, and it, was, it validated everything I've experienced in the past 10 years of ministry. Here's what he told me. He said that whenever marriages are, trouble, are in trouble and they reach out for help, 
99.9% of the time, do you know who it is who reaches out? It's the wife. It's always the wife, man. And I'm just saying, I think that's symptomatic of the fact that maybe we're missing the, initi- the initiative that God has called us to if we're to lead like Christ leads the church. All right, so uh, romantically, relationally, how about this one? I think men are called to initiate spiritually. In their relationship with their wife, in their home, if we are to lead like Christ does the church, which Christ leads his church into a place of harmony with God, I think that means that husbands, that, that it's on us to lead our wives and to lead our families spiritually. Now this one, I'm just gonna say, I think this one's the hardest of them all. And, uh, and unfortunately, the reason for that is because men, I feel like we don't have a lot of great examples of this. When you look in society and when you look at your family, my guess is you probably don't have a lot of good examples of this, of men who take spiritual leadership in the home, take spiritual leadership in the family. I don't think we have a lot of good examples. In fact, there are legions of statistics uh, that are done in our country that reveal that, that it is a rare thing for men to take spiritual initiative in their family and their relationships. In fact, I'll just give you a couple. Did you know, according to one statistic, with over 400,000 churches in North America, they said that the average percentage of men to women that, that attend church on a weekly basis, 61% women, 39% men. And that is true across every age group in all churches in America. What's that telling us? Here's what it's saying, man. It's saying that the women are the ones who are taking most of the initiative spiritually within their families. So another statistic explains that of, uh, of wives who are married that attend church, 25% of them, one in four, will worship alone, week to week. Husband doesn't come to church, doesn't lead at all, doesn't lead in those things. In fact, did you know this? One of the things that we do at Grace Church is we, we track attendance trends, and we actually do this across the nation. And did you know that nationally speaking, do you know what notoriously the, the best attended Sunday is on the weekend besides Christmas and Easter? Do you know what it is? Mother's Day. And do you know what the lowest attendance notoriously Sunday is? Father's Day. That's because moms say, I want everyone to come to church. That's what I want for Mother's Day. Dads are like, I want to stay home in my underwear. (laughs) It's like, dude, right? It's all symptomatic of the fact that guys aren't leading in this way. They're not leading in this way, right? And I'm just saying, there are so many statistics that are done that, that explain the, the, the nourishment and the health that is brought into a family, that is brought into society, that is brought into a church when men lead. Tony Evans, awesome pastor down in Dallas, Texas, in light of all of these statistics, said something phenomenal. This is what he said. He said it better than I could ever say it, so I'll just quote him. He said, as goes the man, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the community, and as goes the community, so goes the nation. Now watch this. So if you want to change the nation, change the community. And if you want to change the community, change the church. And if you want to change the church, change the family. And if you want to change the family, change the man. As the man goes, so the family goes. And God made it this way. God invented it this way, and he wants it to be this way, right? You guys, here's the thing that breaks my heart the most about about this, is that the problem of men not taking spiritual initiative in their relationship with their wife and in their family is as old as time itself. In fact, did you know that back in Genesis, when the Bible says that sin first entered in the world, some of you might remember this story, Eve was deceived by the serpent to eat the fruit that God had forbid that they eat. Did you know that the Bible seems to contribute that failure to the failure of the leadership of the husband? Let me show you what I'm talking about. This blew my mind. Look at this. 
Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing for the eye, that was the food that God said don't eat, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Now watch this next part. So she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. The dude was with her, and he ate it, right? Now, I don't know about you, but man, for the longest time, for years, I thought that when Eve was deceived to eat the fruit, that Adam was off doing something else, right? Like Adam was hunting or naming animals or something like that, right? But the Bible says, no, the guy was right there. He was right there with her. When the serpent was talking with her and deceiving her, Adam's there. And I'm like, what was he doing? And I'll tell you what he was doing. You guys know what he was doing, right? He was playing on his phone. (laughs) Playing, right? He's probably checking the stats on his stupid fantasy football thing or, you know, watching YouTube videos about some pointless hobby. Who knows what he was, that's what he was doing, right? And so Eve is like, here, eat this. And he's like, okay, I'll just eat that. You know, like, you're like, dude, there's a, there's a serpent talking to your wife. Like, you're going to let that happen? And by the way, when sin enters the world, do you notice who God holds accountable? Look at this. When the, after this all happened, the Lord God called to the man. And what was his question? Where are you, Adam? Because he was hiding. You remember this? Where are you, Adam? And you guys, listen, I believe that this same question is the question that God would ask of men. When he looks down and he sees so much of the dysfunction that is in families today, when he so, so many of the issues that exist in families, in the church, in community, I think God would look down and he would say, men, man, where are you? And where are you in your marriage? Where are you in your family? Where are you in the church? Where are you in community? And I'm just telling you, So many issues and so much dysfunction that we see, I believe, stems from this problem that goes all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And so husbands, we're called, man, we're called to love like Christ loved the church, and part of that is initiating, and part of that is initiating spiritually in our families. So go back to our definition. Headship is a husband's portrayal of Christ-like leadership through sacrificing, initiating. Let's look at these two. I just lumped these together for time's sake through protecting and providing for his wife and his family. Now, where where am I getting this from? Well, let me just show you real quick. So if you look at uh, Ephesians 5 again, the Bible says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one's ever hated his own body, but they, look at this, they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. So you notice the Bible says that if we're going to lead, husbands, if we're going to lead like Christ does the church, then that means that we are to feed and care for our, our wife the same way that Christ feeds and cares for his body, the church. That's what we're doing. I think what that means is, again, that the weight of provision is something that is supposed to rest on, on the shoulders of the husband, right? that we're to, we're to feel that weight. And I've heard some people say, well, this is why husbands need to work and wives need to stay home with the kids, and that's kind of how that needs to work. And I don't necessarily, that might be a stretch. I think, um, I think that each family needs to decide that on their own, uh, exactly how the working relationship works. However, I think what this is telling us is that the primary weight of responsibility of provision for the family, uh, God holds the man responsible for that, all right? And so it's our responsibility. I also want you to notice this. Look at Colossians 3. Colossians 3 says, husbands, love your wives. And then he says, don't be harsh with them. Don't be harsh with your wife. And then if you look at 1 Peter, he actually uses some similar language. He says, in the same way, husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wives with understanding as you live together. She might be weaker than you are, but she's your equal partner in God's view, uh, a, a gift of new life. Treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. And so I want you to notice here in this passage that, that Peter seems to be telling us the way, that, the way that husbands are to treat their wives. 
So you notice this? Husbands are to treat their wives with honor, with understanding, as an equal partner, and he's to treat her as you should. Uh, back in Colossians, he said, don't treat your wife harshly. Now, what's all this saying? Well, I think what it means is, I think it means that it's saying that it's the husband's responsibility to protect his wife, to treat her in a way that she is never at fear of her husband. And no, notice what it says in this passage. Some, some of you may be cringed at this. It says she may be weaker than you are. And some of, some of you women might be like, well, what's that talking about? I ain't weaker than my husband, Right? And, and I think, by the way, what Peter is saying here, some commentators have different views, but I think what Peter is actually saying here is I think he's just pointing out that, generally speaking, the genetic reality is that men are stronger than women, typically. Now, that's not always the case. It's not always the case, right? I think that's why he says, she may be weaker than you. She may not be weaker than you, right? For some of you, maybe you have a wife, she can bench press twice as much as you can, right? You might, have a, you might be 125 pounds sopping wet, she could take you to the mat like that if she wanted to, right? That happens sometimes. But I think what he's saying is, generally speaking, she might be weaker than you. And what that means is that husbands, that, that we should protect our wives, that God has put that in us, right? That, that we should protect our wives physically, emotionally, uh, that we should protect them in the way that we speak to them, right? And what I think that means is, wives, you should never be at fear of your husbands. You should never be in fear that your husband is going to do anything physically to you that would damage you. You should never be, you should never be afraid that your husband, of his outbursts and his anger. You should never be afraid that he's going to belittle you or demean you. And if he does, man, shame on him. As God's daughter, as someone that, that you're going to share, equal, he's an equal partner in God's gift of new life to you. And so I think, I think what he's saying here is that husbands, we, we have a responsibility to treat our wives a certain way with gentleness, with encouragement. I think that means, guys, that we don't joke around with our wives the same way we joke around with the guys. Like, let's just be honest. Guys, the way we joke around with each other, generally speaking, we just bust each other's chops. That's all we ever do, make fun of each other. It's like the, the better the criticism, the better, the better the joke. But you see, we can't treat our wives that way. They're different than we are. God has created them that way. It reminds me of the story a friend was telling me about there was a wife, and she, um, she, I guess she had bounced a check. And you guys know how that goes. It's, it's, everyone does that every once in a while. It's a terrible thing to do, and you just, you just feel bad about it. And so she went to her husband. She was going to tell him that she bounced a check. And so she said, she said honey, I, I bounced a check. I just want to tell you I'm sorry. And his, this was his response to her. He said, I don't know how it's possible that God made you so pretty and so stupid. And so her response, I like her response to him. She came back to him, and she said, well, God made me pretty so that you would want to marry me. And he made me stupid, so I would want to marry you, right? It's pretty good. It's pretty good, right? I, th I think we just got to be real careful, right? Husbands, the way we talk to our wives, I think we're supposed to speak tenderly, encouragingly, gently to them. That's what we kind of see here, right? We're to protect and provide for our wives. Let's say one more thing. Um, I want you to notice what Peter does at the end here. He says, you should treat your wives as you should. Now, notice he says so that your prayers won't be hindered. Here's what I think is real fascinating, husbands. God says that there is a direct connection between the way we treat our wives and our relationship with him. And so the Bible says that, if, husbands, if we're not treating our wives, not perfectly, because none of us can do this perfectly, but if we're not striving to treat our wives the way that God intends for us to do that, and we think that we have a good relationship with God, man, we are deceived. We're deceived. God says, I will not hear your prayers. If you're not treating my daughter the way that I have designed for you to treat her, not perfectly but increasingly, and you think you're gonna, I'm going to hear from you, I'm not going to listen to you, th th this will affect our relationship with God. And so there's a lot at stake in this picture.
One more time, definition. Headship is a husband's portrayal of Christ-like leadership through sacrificing, initiating, protecting, and providing for his wife and his family. Uh, I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as they make their way up here, I want to uh, close with just a couple quick thoughts that I think are important and worth mentioning. Um, and I want to say something first to husbands, and then I want to say, I want to actually say something to wives, okay? So let me, let me just talk real quick to husbands. I think it's probably important that I say that everything that I mentioned today about a husband's role is, is for those who follow Jesus. And so if you're not a person that follows Jesus, the truth of the matter is that uh, we can't hold you to this standard. We can't hold you to this model, right? So this is actually just more like suggestions to you. If you don't follow Jesus, you, you're, you're not commanded to do this, all right? However, I would say that if you're not a follower of Jesus, I think one of the best things you can do for your marriage and one of the best things you can do for yourself is to come to know Christ, is to give your life to him, to watch the wisdom of God played out in your life and played out in your marriage. So I'd encourage you to do that. But for husbands who know Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're a husband, listen, I just want to talk to you and I just want to say, I know that what I'm talking about right now is hard. I, I know, I feel the weight of this too. I'm a husband too. And when, and when I look at this, man, I know that the demands on husbands are always the highest. The demands that are put on you men are high. They're, when you're at work, the demands your boss puts on you are highest. When you're at home, the demands that your family puts on you are highest. And when you come to church, the demands that your pastor and the Bible, there's high. And I understand that. I understand that. And for us guys, honestly, sometimes, man, I just think we look at a picture like this. And just think about it for a minute. Who is it that we're comparing ourselves to? Man, it's Jesus. He's perfect. He's without sin. We're not, right? So you can't, we can't draw a direct line to us in Christ, right? None of us are going to do this perfectly. However, I do believe, I do believe that this is a model that we're to chase after and that this is worth fighting for because there's so much at stake. There's so much, your family's at stake, the health of your family's at stake, your spiritual vitality is at stake, the glory of God is at stake in these things. And I think it's something worth fighting for. And here's the thing, husbands, here's the thing. And I don't know why this is the case, but my guess is for many of you that, that you might be hearing this message and this might be what, you think, what you're thinking. And the reason I know this is because this is what I would be thinking. This is a guy thing. I don't know what it is. But you're probably hearing this and you're probably saying, yeah, man, you know what? That's, ah, that's true. And the Bible says some stuff. Man, I'm convicted and I need to change. I probably need to apologize for some stuff. I probably need to do some stuff differently. I probably need to change. And you probably feel convicted when you look at some of this stuff. But I don't know why this happens to guys. It's, I think it's a guy disease. But my guess is that the moment that you're thinking it, you're also thinking, yeah, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Because if I was to do something now, it would feel hokey and it would feel forced. Because my wife is sitting right here, dude. She knows you just preached this message. So if I go home and start doing stuff, she's going to be like, you're just doing that because Tony said so. And so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to wait a couple months until she forgets about everything that you said. And then I'm going to start trying to do something so it seems like my original idea, right? And I'm just saying, man, I don't know why we do that. It's like a disease we have. I do it too, right? I'm like, it's not my idea. It's not a good idea. And I'm just, I'm just saying, man, men, marriage is what you make it. It's what you make it. And some of you are like, I have not been making much of it. You can change that. By God's grace, with God's help, you can change that today. You can change it today. And so take the conviction that the Holy Spirit is giving you and put it into action. Man, I tell you, the demands are high, but it's huge. All right? The husband is who, who is successful at loving his wife in the way that God wants him to love, not perfectly, but increasingly, is a successful man. By all standards, he's a successful man. 
Now, let me just say something to wives real fast, and then we'll be finished. By the way, next week, we're going to be talking to singles. So if you're single, you didn't get left out. We'll talk to you next week. But wives, let me just say this to you. And I need to say this to you because I said this to your husband last week about you. You cannot demand this of your husband. You cannot. And, and listen, last week we looked at submission, and I told you husbands cannot, cannot demand submission uh, from their wives. They can't. Submission is a willing choice of a wife to do that out of reverence for Christ. And last week we said that the verse that says wives submit to your husbands is addressed to wives. It's not addressed to husbands. It's not, it's not their verse. These are not your verses. So you cannot demand this on your husband. If you want any chance of your husband changing, and if you desire this and you want this, if you want to destroy any chance of that happening, then demand this of him, right? You cannot get in the car after this message and then sit next to him and say, so, what did you think of the message, right? I happen to like it myself, right? And like, can't, can't do that, can't do that, all right? So, so you're like, and I know some of you wives are like, but I really want this. I want this for my husband. I want this. If that's the case, here's what you do, all right? You pray. You pray for him. The demands are high on him. The calling is big on him. You pray for him, all right? And you submit to him. And as you do that, God will use your submission to change his heart. I've seen it done. I believe God will do it. And I believe God can do that in your marriage as well. All right, let's pray together. Well, God, I just want to say thank you for your love. Your love is a sacrificing, initiating, providing, and protecting love. Jesus, you're, you are the best example of what true sacrificial love looks like, that you would leverage all of your power, that you would leverage all of your position, that you would leverage all of your resources for the benefit of us. It is a love that exists nowhere on this earth. And so, God, we're in awe of your love, and I pray that that love would transform us and that it would transform marriages. God, would you help us redefine what marriage is, not according to what our culture says, but according to what your word says. And we realize you defined it, God. You're the one who created it, and you intended it to do something. And I believe when we live out the, the design that you've intended for marriage, that we get to experience the wisdom and joy and flourishing that you created us for. God, I want to pray specifically for husbands in this room. The calling on them is high. The example that we have is impossible. Christ-likeness is outside of our reach. But with your help and with the help of your spirit, God, I know that you'll give us what we need to be able to love and to lead, to initiate and sacrifice, to provide and protect the way that you've called us to. So, Father, I pray that you would equip us to do that. Help us to take initiative, God. Help us not to let our pride get in the way. Help us to, to, to see real transformation take place. Thank you for husbands. Thank you for what they mean to the family and how you've designed them that way. Thank you for wives. Thank you for how you've designed them and you've made them. And, and God, we just want to pray these things and want to ask for your help in these things. In Christ's name.